Um, on behalf of the New Criterion and the Center for American Greatness, Chris Buskirk and I would like to welcome you to this, uh, this discussion about the constellation of issues posed by the recent rise in populist sentiment throughout the Western world. In this country, anyway, the populist upsurge is often identified with the election of Donald Trump, of course, in November of 2016. But the political, moral, and social realities for which Trump was a symbol and also a conduit, both predated his candidacy and achieved independent reality in countries as disparate as the UK, Hungary, Italy, and Brazil. At the center of the populist challenge are two questions, I think, questions that we will approach from several different directions today. The first question revolves around the question of sovereignty. Who governs a country? That question was posed in its most exigent form in the title of John Fonte's 2011 book, Sovereignty or Submission? Will Americans rule themselves or be ruled by others? So impressed were we with the argument that that prescient book made, that we not only appropriated the title for this conference, but we also appropriated the author, who will uh, speak to us shortly on this subject. Now, the question of sovereignty is at the center of all contemporary populist initiatives and has been posed with increasing urgency as the bureaucratic burden of what has come to be called the administrative state, the deep state, has intruded more and more forcefully upon the political and social life of Western democracies. The question was perhaps most dramatically posed in the UK. In June 2016, more uh, Brits voted to leave the European Union and return sovereignty to Parliament than had ever voted for anything in, hist in the history of that, uh, that great island. The fact that three years have passed without Brexit having been accomplished is a melancholy reminder of how entrenched alternatives to national sovereignty have become. We'll see if Boris Johnson is able to take the UK out of the European Union by the end of the month, as he has promised. Uh, I think he'll manage it, but we'll see. I guess the question is, will he manage it in such a way that it's really Brexit or just seems to be Brexit? That, that's another question. But the second key question, I think, uh, and one that's related to the issue of sovereignty, is the issue of what Lincoln called public sentiment. The widespread, almost taken for granted, yet nonetheless palpable affirmation by a people of their national identity. The erosion of national sovereignty to which populism is a response has been accompanied by an erosion of that shared national consensus that traditionally has nourished the particulars of public sentiment. Increasingly, 
Increasingly, the pillars of that consensus, the binding realities of family, religion, civic duty, national affiliation, have faltered before the blandishments of the globalist juggernaut. I think that the English philosopher Roger Scruton was correct when he observed that, quote, democracies owe their existence to national loyalties, the loyalties that are supposedly shared both by the government and the opposition. One pressing question we face today is whether we can any longer count on that supervening loyalty to unite us. In this context, it is worth noting how thoroughly the term populism has been weaponized as a negative epithet by the elites. Successfully charge someone with populist sympathies and you get for free both the imputation of demagoguery and what was famously derided as a deplorable and irredeemable cohort. Populism, that is to say, is wielded less as a descriptive than as a delegitimizing term. The element of existential depreciation is almost palpable. So it is the element, so is the element of con condescension. Inseparable from the diagnosis of populism is the implication not just of incompetence, but also of a crudity that is partly aesthetic and partly moral. Hence the curiously visceral distaste expressed by elite opinion for, this, for signs of populist sympathy. When Hillary Clinton charged that half of Donald Trump's supporters were an irredeemable basket of deplorables, or when Barack Obama castigated small town Republican voters as bitter folk who cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment. What they expressed was not disagreement, but condescending revulsion. I think I first became aware that the charge of populist sympathies could have a powerful political, moral, and class delegitimizing effect when I was in London in 2016 to cover the Brexit vote. Nearly everyone I met, from Tory ministers to taxi drivers, from tourists to tradesmen, was a remainer. And the higher up the income and class scale you went, the more likely it was that your interlocutor would be in favor of Britain remaining in the EU. And the more pointed would be the disparagement of those arguing in favor of Brexit. The Brexiteers were said to be angry, ignorant, fearful, xenophobic, and of course, racist. Except they weren't, at least not the ones that I met. For them, Brexit turned on the simple question that is at the heart of our deliberations today. Who rules? Who rules? Is the ultimate source of British sovereignty Parliament, as it had been for centuries? Or is it Brussels, seat of the European Union? Parliament answers to the British voters. The European Union answers to, well, to itself. Indeed, it is worth pausing to remind ourselves how profoundly undemocratic is the European Union. Its commissioners are appointed, not elected. They cannot be turned out of office by voters. 
If the public votes contrary to the wishes of the EU's commissars in a referendum, then they simply are presented with another referendum and another and another until they vote the right way. The EU's agents wield extraordinary power over the everyday lives of their charges. A commissioner in Brussels can tell a property owner in Wales what sort of potatoes he's allowed to plant on his farm, whom he must allow into his country, and how he must calculate the weight of the products he sells. He can outlaw racism and xenophobia and specify a penalty of at least two years imprisonment for infractions. He can lawfully suppress, as the London Telegraph reported, political criticism of its institutions and of its leading figures, thus rendering the, the uh, commissars of the EU not only beyond the vote, but also beyond criticism. The metabolism of this political dispensation was anticipated by Tocqueville in Democracy in America. Unlike despotism of yore, Tocqueville noted, uh, this modern allotrope of despotism does not tyrannize over people. It infantilizes them. And it does this by promulgating an ever more cumbersome set of rules and regulations that reach right into the interstices of everyday life and hamper initiative, stymie independence, stifle originality, and homogenize, homogenize life. Tocqueville's analysis has led many observers to conclude that the villain in this drama is the state. But the political philosopher James Burnham, writing in the early 1940s, saw that the real villain is not the state as such, but the bureaucracy that maintained and managed it, the deep state, the administrative state. Sovereignty, Burnham saw, was shifting from parliaments to what he called administrative bureaus, which increasingly are the real seats of power and as such proclaim the rules, make the laws, and issue the decrees. That's Burnham. The debate over the location of sovereignty has played a large role in the rise of the phenomenon that we are describing today as populism, both in the United States and in Europe. For one thing, the question of sovereignty stands behind the rebellion against polit political correctness and moral meddlesomeness that are such conspicuous and disfiguring features of our increasingly bureaucratic society. The smothering Tocquevillian blanket of regulatory excess has had a wide range of practical and economic effects, stifling entrepreneurship and making any sort of productive innovation difficult. The issue of sovereignty also stands behind the debate over immigration. Indeed, no issue is more central to the question of who governs than the question of a nation's borders and who gets to decide uh, how a country defines its first person plural, that we that makes us who we are as a people. Throughout his 2016 campaign, Donald Trump promised to enforce America's immigration laws to end so-called sanctuary cities, which advertise themselves as safe havens for illegal aliens, though of course we're not allowed to call them illegal aliens, and to sharpen vetting procedures for people wishing 
to immigrate to America from countries known to export terrorism. Behind the reaction to Trump's efforts at immigration reform are two very different concepts of the nation state and the world order. One view sees the world as a collection of independent sovereign countries that although interacting with one another, regard the care, safety, and prosperity of their own citizens as their first obligation. This is the traditional view. It is also Donald Trump's view. It is what licenses his talk of putting America first, a concept that notwithstanding the anti-Trump media has nothing to do with what Charles Lindbergh, uh, Charles Lindbergh's isolationist movement in the early 1930s uh, was about. It has everything to do with fostering a healthy sense of national identity and purpose. The alternative view regards the nation state with suspicion as an atavistic form of political and social organization. The nation state might still be a practical necessity, they admit, but the argument goes, it is a regrettable necessity inasmuch as it retards mankind's emancipation from the parochial bonds of place and local allegiance. Ideally, according to this view, we are citizens of the world, not particular countries, and our fundamental obligation is to all mankind. This, of course, is the progressive view, and it would be uh, hard to overstate its influence. Progressives argue that a globalist, supernatural world is a necessary condition for free trade. But the spirit of local control tempers the cosmopolitan project of a borderless world with a recognition that the nation state has been the best guarantor not only of sovereignty, but also of broadly shared prosperity. What we might call the ideology of free trade, the globalist aspiration to transcend the impediments of national identity and control is an abstraction that principally benefits its architects. In the end, what James Burnham anatomized as the managerial revolution is part of a larger progressive project. The aim of this project is partly to emancipate mankind from such traditional sources of self-definition as national identity, religious affiliation, and specific cultural rootedness, partly to perpetuate and aggrandize the apparatus that oversees that dissolution. Burnham castigates this hypertrophied form of liberalism, what we might call illiberal liberalism, as an ideology of suicide that has insinuated itself right into the center of Western culture. In Burnham's view, the primary function of this form of liberalism was to, quote, permit Western civilization to be reconciled to its own dissolution, to view weakness, failure, and even collapse not as defeat, but as the transition to a new and higher order in which mankind as a whole joins in a universal civilization that has risen above the parochial distinctions, divisions, and discriminations of the past. Thus Burnham. Populism is a visceral reaction against these forces of dissolution. But as I watch the furious <coughs> deep state effort 
to remove Donald Trump from office for the crime of having been elected. I wonder whether the populist reaction is sufficiently robust to succeed. Perhaps we'll have an answer to that wonder over the course of the day.